This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 9th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today is just about the second anniversary of this podcast. And looking back, it's clear that what we've discussed has changed markedly over that time. At first, we talked mostly about the epidemiology and clinical characteristics of the illness. And then as the first putative treatments emerged, we devoted a good deal of time to evaluating the different approaches. Vaccines really changed the conversation, and we've probably spent more time discussing vaccines and their effectiveness than any other topic. And then most recently, the Omicron surge has been one of our primary topics. So today, let's talk about the overall goals of treating and preventing disease, given the tools that are now available. But before we get into that broader topic, I did want to mention two items that we published today. First, we have a study of vaccine effectiveness performed in the Veterans Affairs System. What did the investigators find there? Steve, this study actually looked at the effectiveness of boosting with the same vaccine or homologous boosting and with receiving a different vaccine as a booster or heterologous boosting. They used a database of almost 5 million veterans and linked the records to a second database that contains information on laboratory diagnosis of severe COVID-19. They identified those who received a heterologous booster and matched each one to someone who received a homologous booster using several criteria that could be associated with disease susceptibility and severity. The primary outcome was incidence of infection with secondary outcomes of disease severity and death. In total, there are about 43,000 participants who received AD26-CoV-2S, the Janssen vaccine, along with a booster, and almost 36,000 who'd received a booster after one of the mRNA vaccines. Although these are relatively large numbers, the number of infections was small in each group. But for those who had been given the Janssen vaccine, boosting with an mRNA vaccine resulted in about half the rate of infection as compared to those who received an additional dose of the Janssen vaccine. Almost all recipients of an initial dose of an mRNA vaccine received one of the mRNA vaccines as a boost. Either seemed to produce similar levels of protection against infection. The numbers for moderate or severe disease were very small, but it did appear that mRNA boosting was more effective. I think there are a few takeaways. First, we've seen several reports of a better immune response with mRNA boosters, and this is reflected in the effectiveness data. Second, much of the sampling was done while Delta was the dominant variant, so the results might well be different while Omicron is dominant. And third, boosting works. We've known that for a while, but it appears to be equally true in this cohort of older individuals with a mean age of 68, and a population with many more comorbidities than in younger, lower-risk populations. So, Eric, I want to clarify a couple of key concepts. First, the concept of homologous or heterologous. We need to think of that in two different ways. One is the platform or delivery system, be it an mRNA, a viral vector, or a protein. The other is in terms of the insert or the antigen used in terms of what we want the immune system to target. And both of those issues require further careful scientific investigation. To date, the focus has largely been on platform with the idea that the platform may elicit different qualities in the immune response. And this is under investigation, as you point out, the mRNA platforms appear to provide a stronger immune response, especially in terms of neutralizing antibody. A second key concept is the idea of boosting and what does boosting mean? Because I think it is in part confounded 
by timing. Is it more important to have three shots or four shots in our immunocompromised patients or to have a recent shot so that one has a higher titer? And we've seen this play out in different ways. Some of the data looking at neutralizing responses to Omicron show that after three immunizations, there is a stronger response than after two immunizations. But the third immunization is typically months later. Thus, there is time for immunologic rest and maturation. But more importantly, I think the question is, how recently have you been immunized? And therefore, your titers elevated when you then are exposed to the circulating variant. I don't think these data can unravel many of these complexities, but they do show that a recent immunization with a mRNA booster provides the best protection, at least during the Delta surge a few months ago. That's a really useful way of thinking about it, Lindsay. Another way to think about the vaccines we have is that they were all developed very early on in the outbreak, incredibly quickly after the outbreak began. And I think an increasing number of people are calling these first-generation vaccines. We've used these, we've given them to hundreds of millions of people, but there's no reason to think that this is as good as we can get. And there is more vaccine development going on, not only to increase the availability of vaccines, but perhaps to produce vaccines that are more effective or more effective against subsequent rounds of variants. So we're spending a lot of time discussing the use of what we have today, as we should, but there are good reasons to think that we might have better things out there eventually. Absolutely, Eric. I think the vaccines were developed very rapidly using the best science available and being very cognizant of time and the importance of developing countermeasures very quickly. So I, like you, am optimistic that we will have better vaccines either through delivery or through the immunogen relevant to the circulating variant at the time. But I also think something which we have talked about, but I don't think we can stress enough, is how we define success. And the issue of transmission and mild infection versus severe illness and hospitalization and death. All are important. However, the benefits to hospitalization and death are still preserved for the vaccines we've discussed in face of the variants that were circulating. Thus, I think we do have tools that are quite valuable, although they can and will be improved upon. The second piece we published today looks at a different type of immune protection, that elicited by natural infection rather than by vaccination. This study comes from Qatar, a country that's produced a substantial amount of research on COVID-19. So what did we learn in this study? As with prior studies, these investigators used the very extensive databases in Qatar to compare the effectiveness of having a prior infection in protecting against infection during the Omicron wave. They used a test negative design that we've described in the past. As with previous studies, the group was young with a median age in the low 30s. Overall, they found that prior infection was about 90% effective against infection with the alpha, beta, and delta variant, but only about 56% against Omicron. There were only a very small number of severe infections and hospitalizations, and there were no deaths. Once again, we find that prior infection does induce protection against subsequent infection. The young age of this population does make it somewhat difficult to extrapolate the actual values to higher risk groups that are present in many other countries. And 
Of course, the timing of infection could also influence waning immunity, as many of the people who got infected with Omicron had been infected in much earlier waves. Nevertheless, these are encouraging data as we're coming down from very high rates of infection right now, population-wide. And they do suggest that there will be a reasonable amount of protection in the population. So, Eric, I think these data raise some important concepts that we have to think about. Given the broad spread of Omicron and prior variants, but Omicron in particular, we now have a population that will largely have hybrid immunity, natural infection and vaccine immunity in some combination. What are the implications in terms of the durability, breadth, and potency of the immune responses in this context? And I think we'll have to generate data to understand the implications because early in the epidemic, it largely was vaccine immunity against infection. Now we are seeing data about natural infection against subsequent infection. But largely what we'll be dealing with will be hybrid immunity. And that will be much more complex because as we discussed, natural infection exposes the immune system to a broad array of antigens, and therefore the immune response will be much more complicated than eliciting an anti-spike response, as our vaccines largely do. That gets back to the issue of what a good vaccine would be. Obviously, a great vaccine would induce immunity, perhaps to multiple antigens, and in a way that more closely resembled the immunity induced by natural infection. And so I think this also shows us that there's room to move on vaccines to try to better replicate what happens during infection. So in that regard, this study raises an important question. If the vaccines have relatively poor efficacy against the Omicron variant, how should we be using them strategically? That's a really good question, Steve. And I think it gets to an evolution, a slow evolution in the thinking about how we should use the tools we have. Now, first, a vaccine that is only partially effective at preventing infection still has a big use for public health reasons. Yes, it's not perfect, but decreasing the rate of transmission, even by a relatively small amount, can have a big impact on the size of an epidemic and can limit the spread, particularly in vulnerable populations. So I don't want to dismiss the fact that a vaccine that's partially effective is still useful. But I'd like to go back to what Lindsay said earlier, which is that these vaccines are still very highly effective at preventing serious illness and death. And so that makes them very useful, but it does change our thinking. Initially, during the epidemic, we hoped that vaccines would be our salvation and that they would short circuit transmission and there would be no further epidemic spread of disease. It appears that in the setting of Omicron, that's not true, that there still can be considerable spread of disease of this variant for which the vaccine doesn't protect against infection all that well. And there still can be a lot of disease out there and there still can be disease in the most susceptible populations who can go on to have serious illness. But we can stop hospitals from filling up. We can stop people from dying. That makes a huge difference. And that's really um, 
I hate to make this comparison because people make it all the time and it's usually not all that valuable, but it makes it a bit similar to influenza. The influenza vaccine is partially effective. It doesn't prevent spread entirely of disease, but it is pretty good at preventing serious illness. And we live with flu. I think we're at a point now where we have to learn to live with infection. And the way to learn to live with infection is in part by stopping people from getting really sick with it. And the vaccines are an important tool for doing that. So Eric, to broaden the concept that Steve is getting at, we have to think a bit about the outcome of interest. What does transient mucosal replication mean if you develop no symptoms? And the ability to stop any transmission of SARS-CoV-2, I think we've come to realize is not possible given its silent nature in the vast majority of people it infects. But if it causes transient, inconsequential mucosal infection, what does that mean? And that gets at the issue of severe illness that, Eric, you were highlighting. So I think our strategy may need to change to how we protect those who are most vulnerable, our immunocompromised patients, those who live in congregate settings, those who can't be vaccinated, the newborns, the next generation who obviously will be naive to these pathogens. These are communities we're going to have to think about how do we protect them from severe illness, given their inexperience with this pathogen and therefore potential for more severe illness. So, Steve, I think we're shifting our thinking to control transmission in higher risk environments, and to minimize morbidity in those who are more vulnerable. And in the context of what you're saying is an endemic disease, how do therapies fit in? Until recently, therapies weren't a very important part of the conversation, I think, because our most effective therapies were limited to those who were hospitalized and quite ill already, and they weren't highly effective. Now we have interventions that can keep people out of the hospital and keep people from dying quite effectively. So for now, at least, once these become more widely available, I think they are extremely useful tools in much the way that vaccines are. Not all of them can prevent disease, although there are monoclonal antibody treatments that can be given after exposure that actually do prevent infection. But many of them and most of them are able to prevent the worst outcomes of disease. So having these as an adjunct to vaccination makes a big difference. And from a public health standpoint, again, if they're widely available, if they're inexpensive enough to be used, and they can be accessibly administered, I mean, administered in a way that really a lot of people can get them, then they can serve as similar public health tools to vaccines. And getting back to something that Lindsay said, in particular, our most vulnerable populations now have an opportunity to have access to something that might work for them. For example, there are populations that don't respond well or don't respond at all to vaccination. And for them, these sorts of tools are critical. As I think about our journey, two years ago, the pathogen emerged, we identified it, we elucidated some of its basic pathogenesis biology, A little over a year ago, the vaccines emerged, having demonstrated efficacy, and we struggled as a community to roll them out quickly enough, given the supply-demand mismatch early. 
And now, two years into this pandemic, multiple therapeutics have emerged, both from the monoclonal antibody as well as the small molecules. And rigorous studies have demonstrated efficacy, and that's very exciting. We are struggling right now with how to roll them out because of the supply-demand mismatch. However, that I think will resolve over the ensuing weeks to months as the Omicron surge decreases and production capacity increases given the efficacy has been demonstrated. So I find that very encouraging and shows what science can do. We need to be able to do it faster. We will continue to improve it. And that is part of the process. However, I think there is an element that we need to pay attention to, which is the diagnostics in that these therapies to treat require an early diagnosis, early treatment from symptom onset to prevent progression to more severe illness and hospitalization. And that's something I think we as a community have to spend a little more time on how to improve. We need to have early, rapid point-of-care diagnostics that are easily accessible so that our patients, our community, can know when they're infected, that helps with infection control to diminish spread, but also to be able to trigger treatment because most of our antiviral directed therapies require early treatment to prevent progression because once one becomes more severely ill, it's often the aberrant immune response that's more dominant rather than lytic viral infection. So I think that will become a combination approach that we have to spend more time optimizing and the challenge with diagnostics is it's not a one-size-fits-all. I have a test, use it. They're used in different ways in different settings. And the turnaround time, the ease of use, the purpose of use will all be important to understand and deploy correctly. But I think our therapeutics, Steve, are terrific. But in order to use them properly, we have to have a system in place that allows us to use them when they have their greatest effect. Another important quality that these diagnostics should have is that they should be cheap. I realize that's part of accessibility, but we need to use them all the time. And to use them all the time, they have to be very inexpensive. It's been very disappointing to see the development of diagnostics. Honestly, they have lagged behind quite considerably over other sorts of measures that have been taken for COVID-19. Still today, in most parts of the U.S., It takes a very long time to get a PCR test and then a very long time to get the results, even immunocompromised people. And I just heard of someone who got their PCR test three days after they developed symptoms and results two days later, and then scheduled monoclonal antibody treatment two days after that. And that's just not acceptable. Even where we are today, we are not making good use of our tests and we're not making them available enough. I mean, just to really highlight your example, Eric. We know that antiviral therapies work best when given as early as possible. So in the patient that you were talking about where it took five to seven days to initiate treatment, that is a place, Steve, where we need to have dramatic improvement because initiating antiviral therapy day two or three of illness in a individual at high risk for disease progression is a important part of the treatment strategy rather than a week later. And so I think that will be part of what will emerge this year, Steve, is our ability to coordinate identifying who's infected early 
and then being able to use our therapeutics to prevent serious illness. Circling back, does this mean that we've gone as far as we can with vaccines? As we discussed earlier, I don't think that's the case at all. I think we might be able to do better. And remember that we can still have the goal of eliminating disease transmission. It's still possible. Lindsay mentioned in passing the idea of mucosal immunity, for example, and it could very well be that if we were able to induce a mucosal immune response, that we could more effectively block transmission. So part of what we'd like to do is be able to induce a response that probably looks more like the one that natural infection produces, as we said before. In addition, the breadth of the immune response is really going to be important as new variants merge. So there are many improvements that can be made on vaccines. And I think there is work going forward to try to do that. Now, there is a practical question. When the disease was rampant and we had no control measures, it was relatively easy to test vaccines. It's getting harder only because most people are vaccinated and most people who'd be willing to participate in trial are the very same people who already received vaccine. So it will be challenging. Nevertheless, if we have outbreaks like Omicron produced, there will be the opportunity to look at disease transmission and infection because those remain markers that are still unfortunately available to us. Eric, as you suggest, and Steve, I think as you imply, all of our therapeutics can be improved upon and will be improved upon, including vaccines. But how to do that really depends on what the virus does. Does Omicron become the dominant circulating strain and variants are offshoots of Omicron? Will the ancestral strain continue to lead to variants? Will there be a new variant that is unrelated to the above? I think depending on what the virus does will require us to change our approaches, just as we see with monoclonal antibodies. A point mutation can lead to substantial abrogation of the neutralizing activity. So I think that we will evolve all of our therapeutics and diagnostics, depending on what the virus does. And that's what we'll have to do. This is not a static process of how to lower my cholesterol or control my blood pressure, which has a lot to do with my basic physiology. We have a pathogen that is vigorously evolving and our tools to combat it will have to evolve with it. One of the challenges in development of anything, whether it's a diagnostic or a vaccine or a therapeutic, is that the disease is kind of episodic. It's a result of evolution. Occasionally, and in a way that we can't predict, new variants could emerge, and they could cause an outbreak. But we can't really test the effectiveness of any intervention until we have that outbreak. We've seen this happen through the course of the epidemic where there are these lulls in infection, which are terrific if you're a patient and not so good if you're a developer. And I think that that challenge will remain. It's going to be hard to test things until we have outbreaks, which is the very thing, of course, that we're trying to avoid. Nevertheless, I think there is the opportunity to develop lots of new interventions. Eric, I think you summed up very nicely the challenge of antimicrobial drug resistance and the need in infectious diseases to develop active therapies for that pathogen that will cause the most disease tomorrow, which is impossible to do until it emerges. 
But I think another issue that we've discussed on previous podcasts, but I think is very important to pay attention to, is the issue of global scale-up. We can improve our tools, but we have to make sure our tools are used everywhere they're needed. And I think with vaccines in particular, we've not gone far enough with them currently in that we have heavily vaccinated certain parts of the globe, like the U.S., but we have under-vaccinated large swaths of the globe. And that is something that we need to reinvigorate on how to do that. Because without deploying these therapies to everyone who needs it, the threat continues and will likely reemerge with a variant of concern. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Eric.